Okay, very good morning. Welcome here to Africa Rise and Shine. Just gone 8 o'clock Central African time. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to West Africa, far West Africa. I'm Jazz Arad. Top stories in Africa rise and shine this hour. Zimbabwe has taken a position on its colonial monuments. It will block any attempts to have Cecil John Rhodes remains exhumed and repatriated to Britain. Finding solutions for peaceful coexistence between refugees, asylum seekers and host communities in South Africa was under the spotlight at a specially convened roundtable discussion by UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Arvind Gupta, and the Moral Regeneration Movement. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown says she has not been formally informed about whether the Board of ESCOM has passed the vote of no confidence in Chairperson Zola Soetzi. Economic News South African Power Utility ESCOM Board is to meet again next week. Now for the news, here is Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Hundreds of children have been reported missing in a northeastern Nigerian town recently recaptured from Boko Haram militants. Local sources in the town of Damasak in Bono State say about 500 children aged 11 and younger were taken by the militants as they fled the area. With the help of soldiers from Chad and Najia, Nigerian forces recaptured the town earlier this month. Damasak had been under the control of Boko Haram militants for four months. Last week, 70 decomposed bodies, many decapitated, were found under a bridge near the town. Damasak is located near the country's border with Niger. Nigerians are now preparing to go to the polls on Saturday to elect a president amid security threats from the Boko Haram militant group. The front runners, President Goodluck Jonathan and former military leader Muhammadu Buhari, have promised to tackle the militants as well as corruption. Sirakimani asked people on the streets what they thought about the upcoming polls. Before our, our GDP is down, now we are the first in Africa, never in history in Nigeria. So, so many things, so many opportunities. Now it's working, creating so many jobs, empowering youth, empowering youth and several things like that. So they should allow him to continue. So I see no reason why people are talking about good luck, good luck, good luck. Who said that a good luck is not try? Me, I don't know the adjective to, disqualify, to, to qualify that person. Good luck I've tried enough for this country. The election of March 28th is going to be a, a bloodless revolution. West African regional bloc ECOWAS has urged Togo to delay its presidential election over claims that the voter register was flawed. ECOWAS chair and Ghanaian president John Dramani Mahama on a visit to Togo said it was unlikely that the election would be able to go ahead as planned on the 15th of next month as the electoral roll was being revised. He met with President Fonyasak Bey who is running for re-election and other officials including the main opposition candidate during his visit. Neither the government nor the electoral commission has yet responded to the ECOWAS proposal. 
The United States Embassy in Uganda has issued an emergency warning to its nationals saying a terrorist attack may take place soon in the capital, Kampala. On Monday, a Ugandan police official said five madrasas across Uganda were shut down of allegations that they were training students to become extremists. Police link the madrasa to the Allied Democratic Forces, a Democratic Republic of Congo-based armed group whose fugitive Ugandan leader is wanted by Interpol. The first trial of an Ebola vaccine began this week in Guinea, one of the, of the three West African countries worst affected by the disease. The World Health Organization says ring vaccination tests of the VSB Ebola vaccine developed by the Public Health Agency of Canada have been well received by the community. The ring vaccination strategy entails identifying recently infected patients and vaccinating all their contacts, thereby creating what is is called a ring of immunity around them. And finally, Zimbabwe has taken a position on its colonial monuments to block any attempts to have the remains of Cecil John Rhodes exhumed and repatriated to Britain. It says the statue of missionary David Livingstone along overlooking the Victoria Falls will also stay put. Rhodes died in South Africa on March the 26, 1902, but chose to have his remains buried in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. Debates in South Africa have revived calls from within Zimbabwe to remove the gravesite of roads from the Matopos World Heritage Site, the National Museums and Monuments Executive Director, Godfrey Mahachi. History is history. Heritage is, is heritage. You know, uh, you can't edit off certain parts of your history because you don't like that history. You then create gaps within your story. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Zimbabwe has taken a position on its colonial monuments. It will b- block any attempts to have Cecil John Rhodes remained exhumed and repatriated to Britain. It says the statue of missionary David Livingston overlooking the Victoria Falls will also stay put. Cecil John Rhodes died in South Africa on March 26, 1902, but chose to have his remains buried atop the scenic world's view in Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. Shingai Nyoka reports. He might have died more than a century ago, but Cecil John Rhodes remains a divisive subject. South Africa's plans to remove statues of the man who epitomized colonialism have revived the debate within Zimbabwe on the future of its own colonial relics. This son of PFU says he was a land grabber and he oppressed us. We don't want to see them here. But opinions remain divided. He's now dead. Yes, let him stay. We are forgiven him. Should be repatriated. I think it's the best. He doesn't belong here. We should embrace it. He's part of our history. If he wasn't there, then there would be no Zimbabwe because there would be no liberation struggle. Zimbabwe has grappled with the very same debates raging in South Africa. How to remember the past without necessarily celebrating it. It's taken a position. Changing Rhodes' street name, it's also torn down many of the statues of Rhodes and placed them in a Bulawayo museum. The National Monuments Organization believes that these physical remnants are in fact the best way to remember the country's colonial past. 
Executive Director of the National Museum and Monuments, Dr. Godfrey Mahache. History is history. Heritage is, is heritage. You know, uh, you can't edit off certain parts of your history because you don't like that history. You then create gaps within your story. We are now Zimbabwe, but we were at some point Rhodesia and there was a colonial episode. We might not want that colonial episode to recur in the future because we have forgotten about the first time it happened. Even the head of state has waded into the debate. At the ZANU-PF Congress last year, Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe had this to say. The visitors who want to visit his grave must pay for him. So Rose must continue to pay his taxes that way. He never paid us taxes when he was alive, but now I'm sure he can pay taxes. For now, the voices from within ZANU-PF and the War Veterans Association appear to be a fringe minority. And Cecil John Rhodes's remains can stay for now. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Despite ratifying the African Union Declaration on the Rights and Welfare of the African Child in 1999, Zimbabwe is one of the leading countries experiencing child marriage. Zimbabwe is estimated to be experiencing 31% child marriages annually due to failure to align marriages laws with the new constitution. Meanwhile, a two-member AU team is in the country to prepare a launch in April for Zimbabwe to start implementing the declaration. Simon Wichema reports from Harare. Zimbabwe has been identified as one of the top countries in Africa with high early marriage prevalence. According to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, the country is estimated to have 31% prevalence rate. Zimbabwe becomes the only country in SADC among the top 10 together with Ethiopia, Niger, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mauritania, Mali, Nigeria, Guinea-Bissau, and Uganda. So far, Ethiopia, Niger, Burkina Faso, Chad, and Zimbabwe are yet to launch a campaign on ending early child marriages. Child marriage is a criminal harmful sexual practice that initiates girls into motherhood when they are children. African Union Secretary and Coordinator of the African Committee of Experts on the Rights and Welfare of the Child, Mariama Sise Mohamed, said the Zimbabwean launch on the 27th of April is overdue because the country ratified without reservations. Despite ratification, child marriage is still going on in Zimbabwe. Start by presenting the African Charter on the Right and Welfare of the Child. I think you all know what is the Charter. And uh, the Charter was adopted in 1990 and then come into force in 1999. And uh, Zimbabwe has ratified the Charter without any reservation. And uh, from the Charter there is a provision which said state party to the charter should take all the measure, necessary measures to avoid child marriage. So, and then after a study, we realized that child marriage is still going on in Africa. And uh, we target 10 countries with a high level prevalence. Zimbabwe is one of these countries. 
The African Union envoy is in the country to prepare the launch on the 24th of April, which will coincide with extraordinary SADC heads of state summit in Harare. As a result, the two-member team insisted to meet civil society on a day when stakeholders were also commemorating the United Nations Orange Day on gender-based violence. Mariama Sise Ede. You for coming because while we are coming, we insisted, we said we want to meet with a civil society organization because we are our eyes and our feet in a country on the ground. We are there in Addis sitting. We don't know what is going on ground, so we want to meet with them. Also, we want them to be part of the campaign. So we are very happy to see all of you here. But you have, uh, this is show your commitment for the promotion and the protection of the child right and also for the, the, the campaign. So we are really expecting your full participation in this campaign. We are expecting also your report from the ground to the AU. So, we, uh, Chair, also I would like to thank the Ministry uh, for organizing this uh, meeting and to allow us to exchange with the civil society organization. And then uh, I think this is the starting point. African Union campaigner in the Department of Social Welfare, Kenneth Oliko, said girls should be given equal opportunities with that of boys. The campaign was launched in May 2014 by the chairperson of the African Union Commission. And this was born out of her passion on the rights and wealth of the child, especially the girl child, because she believes that um, girls should also be given the equal opportunity of going to education and um, being um, promoted just the way we lay emphasis on the, male, um, on, 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 the, on the male child in the family. And as she would always say that um, women constitute 50% of the, um, the population of Africa, but then they also give birth to the other 50%. So it's important that we begin to pay attention to issues around women if we are thinking towards the socioeconomic development of the, of the continent itself. And as Madame Sise said, um, while we started thinking towards the AU campaign to end child marriage, we looked at um, countries that had high prevalence of child marriage on the continent. Kenneth Oliko said Zimbabwe should not end on launching in April, but work with communities in the fight against early child marriage. You know, what actions need to be taken, concrete actions that need to be taken on the ground to ensure that the issue of child marriage is put to an end. And then... Um, so that we don't just have a, cont I mean, a national launch where you would then have like the high-level people come and make statements and then it ends at that level. But we also, we also want to be able to identify community champions who will take on, that, take on that message. And then they will be the watchers of the perpetration of child marriage within these communities and we can then be able to link them up with the government to ensure that there is... A reporting mechanism whereby the government is aware when an issue of child marriage has just happened within this community what actions can be taken immediately to stop it from going on you know so these are some of the things that we would really like to see happen reporting for channel africa in harare zimbabwe this is simon muchemwa Communities in South Sudan are being supported by the United Nations Mine Action Service to clear remnants of war and identify areas where children's lives are threatened by unexploded ordinances.
Toby Lanza, the UN humanitarian coordinator in the country, recently traveled to Magui in eastern Equatoria State. He says mines are still a terrible threat in that area. So in advance of International Mine Action Day, the theme of which this year is more than mines, I've come down to Magui County in eastern Equatorian state to see the work of the United Nations Mine Action Service and some of its key partners like the Development Initiative uh, and other organizations which have been working on behalf of the communities to clear mines, to identify areas where children are at risk, to make sure that children become more aware of the risks of mines and unexploded ordnance. And then uh, we've just actually uh, witnessed a detonation. Mines that have been found, unexploded ordnance that's been found, has been put into a, a special crater. Uh, there's been a controlled explosion so that these remnants of war are no longer a threat against the local community. So it's really been, been a good day. Very proud of the UN colleagues and their partners in the non-governmental organizations who have been uh, working here. How has it been dangerous this uh, mine to the com- this community? Well, they're very dangerous. I mean, you know, we've got the tragic stories of children who have found a piece of unexploded ordnance. It could be a mortar, it could be a, a bomb that's fallen out of the sky but not exploded, and, and they find them years later and then uh, start playing with things because they think it's a toy, and unfortunately, terrible accidents have occurred. And I heard one story today not in this particular county, but in another part of South Sudan, where a group of four or five children were playing with with something that they'd found that they thought was interesting, and they were rattling it, and then it exploded, and they all lost their lives. So it's it's a terrible threat. It puts people at risk, and I think that the work of the UN and its partners really is useful in, in protecting people and making sure that they can get out to their fields and farm in safety. That's Tony Lanza, the UN Humanitarian Coordinator in South Sudan, talking to Dennis Loro at UN Radio. The Parliament of South Sudan has officially extended President Salva Kiir's term in office by three years, nearly four months before his term in office expires. The extension similarly covers President Salva Kiir's cabinet and governors. The announcement comes amid fresh fighting which erupted in the war-torn country between government troops and rebels. Up to 130 rebels were reportedly killed in the latest attack. James Shimanula reports. The announcement that South Sudan National Assembly has extended the period of ruling for President Salva Kiir and the life of parliament and the governors was made by South Sudan National Assembly spokesman Thomas Wani Kundu in South Sudan National Assembly. Kundu emphasized that the National Assembly had the powers to extend the tenures of the president, governors, and the parliament. The tenure of the office extended is 36 months, which is three years. That is a rainy season. As you know, the environment and the climate in South Sudan does not allow election to be conducted during the rainy season. These three years are made in order to get done so that all of us get prepared and census are conducted, constituents are made, then we shall then conduct free and fair elections throughout the country. The extension of the tenures comes nearly four months before the tenure of the executive, parliament and the governors expires.
The extension also comes five weeks after Sudan's so-called Special Council of Ministers unilaterally extended the tenures. Although the Council's extension was not binding, it required the ratification or approval by the National Assembly. The National Assembly decision to extend the tenures has automatically rubber-stamped the extension. So far, rebel leader Riek Machar has not officially responded to the extension, bearing in mind that he and President Salva Kiir failed to sign a crucial agreement that was expected to create room for the formation of a government of national unity. As South Sudan National Assembly extended the tenuance of parliament, president and governors, reports from Juba the capital say fresh fighting has erupted in the oil-rich Upper Nile region. The fighting pits government troops and rebels led by former Vice President Riek Machar. Shedding light on the fighting in South Sudan, government spokesman Philip Panyanga Gwer disclosed the number of those killed in the fighting which saw rebels lose heavily. The rebels lost 130 of their soldiers. The 130 dead bodies were counted on the trenches, in front of the trenches. The SKLN lost 14 killed in action and 17 wounded. Adding his voice to remarks made by government army spokesman Upper Nile Information Minister Peter Hoth blamed the rebels for starting the fighting and explained the direction they came from to attack government troops. They were coming from North Sudan to attack the SKLF and before that they met the SKLF force in that particular area called Gabat. And the United Nations spokeswoman for South Sudan, Ariane Quintia, had this version of fresh fighting taking place in the northern part of Upper Nile region. We can confirm that this fighting is following an SPLA offensive last week in and around Wada. And we are not in a position to confirm either movements or casualties on the ground. Rebel spokesman Colonel James Lounge says the rebels are still controlling areas of Upper Nile and that the fighting is continuing. We started offensive against them and we have kept ammunition. We are controlling most of our areas and we are in offensive. Government that is making an offensive against us, but we are trying to force a very severe resistance. Amplifying further to remarks he had made earlier regarding the fighting in Upper Nile region, South Sudan Army spokesman Philip Panyanga Gwer said tersely. The rebels uh, have uh, run towards the Republic of Sudan. That was South Sudan government army spokesman Philip Panyang Aguel. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanyula. The 11th Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program, CAADP, partnership platform has heard that Africa has the capacity to feed itself and the rest of the world. The two-day meeting, which kicked off in Johannesburg yesterday, is organized by the African Union Commission and the NEPAD Agency. CAADP, Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program, is a growth-orientated agricultural development agenda aimed at increasing agricultural growth rates to a minimum of 6% per year to create the wealth needed for rural communities and households in Africa to prosper. And Tlantla Maslangu reports. 
The Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Program, CADAP, was endorsed at the African Union Heads of State Summit as a new partnership for Africa's development NEPAD program in July 2003. The overall goal of CADAP is to help African countries reach a higher path of economic growth through agriculture-led development. The 11th CADAP meeting theme is Walking the Talk, delivering on Malabo commitments on agriculture for women empowerment and development. African Union Chair, Commissioner for Rural Economy and Agriculture, Roda P. Stumasem, said the Malabo Declaration on Agriculture and Food Security provides the African vision and resolve to accelerated agriculture transformation through collective and member state-specific actions. When you look at uh, the actions from Malabo, the decisions, and then the actions in the roadmap, you see that the changes actually in approach are now apparent than ever before. And the uh, the issue of, for example, emergency building resilience, this is an issue which was recognized also by the heads of state. It is also actually in the decision in Malabo. Nepal's agency chief executive officer, Dr. Ibrahim Masani Mayagi, says for the agricultural sector to thrive, farmers need to be empowered with the necessary tools. The main actor for implementation of climate smart uh, agricultural policies is uh, the farmer. So the farmer has to be empowered with the necessary capabilities so that he can tackle these issues. And that needs technology transfer. And uh, this is why in our negotiations at the global level, we insist a lot on the issue of technology transfer. The African Union has a very clear focus on climate-smart agriculture. We have a program, which is a program of the African Union, that we implement on climate-smart agriculture, and we focus, we focus on women farmers. The meeting has brought together Africa and global leaders from a number of international organizations, African governments, including ministers, private agribusiness firms, financial institutions, farmers, non-governmental organizations, and civil society organizations to discuss and develop concrete investment plans for scaling agricultural development success in Africa. The two-day meeting encompasses numerous discussions, pledges, and ultimately goals with clarity on execution strategies for the next decades of CADAP in line with the thrust of the African Union Agenda 2063, a huge part of which is agricultural transformation. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Matangu in Johannesburg. Deputy Trade and Industry Minister Nzwandile Masina says the government will not apologize to, any, to apologize to anyone for planning to create at least 100 black industrialists over the next three years. Masina was addressing the opening session of a two-day black industrialist in Daba and Johannesburg at which President Jacob Zuma was the keynote speaker. The black industrialist program is an integral part of the black economic empowerment philosophy with which the government seeks to change the racial profile of industrial industrial assets ownerships. Frank Kumalo was there and filed this report. Masena says it is not enough that the ANC is in charge of the country while black people are not in charge of the economy. Masena said what is being contested here is the ownership of industrial assets which should change hands urgently but within the ambit of the law. He said this program will necessarily 
entail reversing white domination of this class of assets. This program on black industrialists basically constitute a strategic and programmatic policy initiative to build an inclusive economy within the industrial policy that we have approved as a country. For the first time under President Zuma, we have a national development plan, we have an, an industrial policy for the country that we are pursuing. So we are not just doing these things coming from the side. This program on black industrialists in our view, it is a moral oblig- we have a moral obligation as a state to lead the planning and the transformation as well as on issues of, of race relations if we are serious about ensuring that we have a prosperous country that our forebearers have, have envis- envisioned. Black Business Council Chairman Sandy Lezongo challenged the country's development finance institution such as the National Empowerment Fund the Industrial Development Corporation and the Development Bank of Southern Africa to come up with innovative funding models that will facilitate the creation of black industrialists. The DFIs, the NEFs, the ITCs, the DPSAs of this world who are providers of funding for infrastructure, for industrial creation, etc. must come up with uh, terms of lending which facilitate creation of black industrialists on a sustainable basis. This thing of them competing with commercial banks on terms is not going to help black industrialists cause in any way, in any shape or in any form. So we're very enthusiastic about what the president said. We support it 200%. Mzungu said what these institutions need is to create innovative fundraising instruments rather than new state policy instruments to play a meaningful supportive role in the creation of black industrialists. Whether they they are borrowing from local pension funds or they are borrowing from overseas funders. That's where the trick is. What instruments do they come up with uh, which must give the funders or the lenders a peace of mind but at the same time them fulfilling their mandate. If they're going to borrow from exorbitant lenders and want to on intent pass on such uh, harm to black industrialists, then we are on a lose-lose situation. They are not helpful. National Empowerment Fund Chief Executive Pelisio Mteto said what is most exciting about the Black Industrialist Program are the opportunities for equity finance that it brings into the funding mix. In this space alone, the NEF has invested about 650 million rands, and the 650 million has enabled us to leverage an additional 30 billion from other funders. So what is interesting and important about the creation of black industrialists is what we call the provision of equity financing. So this is the space we have been playing in for the last five years. We provide equity financing and then we invite other funders to come and provide synodate and other forms of financing. That was National Empowerment Fund Chief Executive Pilis from Tetra ending that report by Frank Kumala. Time for the news headlines, here's Anne Musa. Good morning. Hundreds of children are reported missing in a northeastern Nigerian town recently recaptured from Boko Haram militants. West African regional bloc ECOWAS urges Togo to delay its presidential election over claims that the voter registration is flawed. And the United States Embassy in Uganda issues an emergency warning to its nationals, saying a terrorist attack may take place soon in the capital Kampala. Those are the stories making headlines.
is Africa Rise and Shine. You're listening to Channel Africa. I'm Jazz Arad. If you've just tuned in, welcome to the show. 29 minutes to 9 a.m. Central African time. We're live from Johannesburg. Up ahead still to come, our economic report, and as well as our sports update with Tommy Nkluza. Tabisa Lehoko with your economic report coming up. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown says she has not been formally informed about whether the Board of ESCOM has passed a vote of no confidence in Chairperson Zola Sotsi. Brown says she was invited to a board meeting last week where the chairperson was asked to recuse himself and she also left the meeting. She added that according to the law, she can only act in ESCOM on the recommendations of the board. Joseph Mosia reports. Media reports have suggested that all board members unanimously resolved to pass a motion of no confidence in Tsoti in a meeting on Thursday last week. Minister Brown says this is yet to be formally communicated to her. The board must take a resolution and the resolution must be sent formally to the minister and the minister then applies his or her mind and take a decision. So that's where we are. So we're in that last phase. I have not been formally told by the board. Am I worried? I'm very worried because ESCOM is a strategic asset. All of our lives depend on it. The economy depends on it. While Brown maintains that she has not been formally informed of Tsotsi's pending removal, her remarks indicated that she might support such an outcome. She expressed her confidence in the board's abilities and skills. If On a board of 30, 12 work together and one doesn't. Don't you go with the majority? Don't you support the majority? Because that means 12 of them are working together. But also it's a new board. So you really have to build the relationships between board members over time. But I've actually been quite impressed with the board. I think that some of the issues have struck us too quickly. And, um, but, but generally, I think this board will see us through. Minister Brown has indicated that there is not much she can do personally to resolve the problems at ESCOM. She says she is seeking legal advice on what her powers are because ESCOM is too important to the country to allow the current situation to continue. I am ham- hamstrung by a Companies Act that says that there should be no political interference and no interference in the running of the board. I am hamstrung by the memorandum of incorporation that says that as well. But I have asked my department and I have spoken to the DG, acting DG, and to give me some legal opinion how far I can go in. Members also raised concerns about the 4 billion rand owed to ESCOM by municipalities. Brown says this is a big problem because ESCOM needs the money. She says the utility has now reached a stage where it has decided to disconnect offending municipalities. She says, however, this presents its own challenges. An example is Ladysmith where multinational corporation Nestle has a factory. I actually put pressure on ESCOM around the Ladysmith issue because I didn't want Nestle to move to Gauteng. Um, so I put pressure on ESCOM to not switch off the electricity in Ladysmith. And I've made ESCOM carry that burden for a long time, a a longer period. But there there has to be a different way to do it. And these committees are not producing results, unfortunately. 
just because the problem is so systemic. In a reply to questions in the NCOP this afternoon, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa said one of the measures they have taken at the war room is to deploy senior management from ESCOM's headquarters to different plants. Even if you have to go and sleep at the door of the power station, I want you to do that because we want energy provision in our country to be resolved. And the fact that they've been deployed to the power stations should be demonstration of the seriousness with which we are taking this task. And I'd like to assure all South Africans that we are addressing this problem. It is quite a complex problem. And it is not yesterday's problem. It emanates from our past. South Africa's Deputy President Sir Ramaphosa ending that report by Joseph Mosia. The case in which South Africa's parastatal ESCOM CEO Shediso Matona is challenging his suspension will be heard today in the Labour Court in Johannesburg. Matona filed an urgent application following a suspension by the chairperson of the board, Zola Sotsi. Matona and three other executives were asked to step aside while an inquiry was conducted into the challenges facing the parastatal. Murafi Tabane has more on this. Matona is taking legal action against ESCOM, claiming it contravened the Labor Relations Act when it suspended him. Today in court, he will be represented by lawyers from Chidel, Thompson and Hasem, while ESCOM will be represented by Boehm and Gilfillan. Most legal experts say Matona's court action is likely to put blame on government. His suspension came at a critical time when the power utility needs stable leadership given its financial and operational challenges. Labor analyst Terry Bell says the developments at ESCOM are a total mess. The thing is that we're facing now, I suspect, but I would actually argue, not suspect, I actually argue with probably the most severe crisis we've had in the last 20 years relating to the whole power situation. And for this to have happened, and at the same time, don't forget, you have the unions calling for uh, the chair of the board, Sotsi, to be outed as well. It's been there for four years. Um, it's, it's a very, very messy situation. It certainly does require urgent action, but how the courts will handle it and, and in relation to the Labor Relations Act, I'm afraid I don't know. It's complete chaos. Whilst the matter will be heard in the Labor Court, the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration says it received a referral from Madonna relating to his suspension. It says in accordance with the CCMA practice and procedure, the matter will be set down for conciliation and all parties will be notified. When announcing Matona's suspension, Chairperson Zola Zuzi said there was no malice or charges linked to the suspended executives and they were simply asked to step down to ensure the fact-finding inquiry was transparent and open. However, Matona has reportedly said the suspension has caused him irreparable harm. I'm Morafi Dabani in Johannesburg. A permanent memorial to honor the victims of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade has been unveiled at the UN headquarters in New York. The memorial, which was conceived during the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the trade in 2007, aims to remind visitors of the complete history of slavery and raise awareness of the current dangers of racism, prejudice, and the lingering consequences of the practice. More than 12 million slaves were shipped from Africa across the Atlantic to the Americas from the 16th through to the 19th century in and to horrendous conditions. Sherwin Bryce Pease has this report. It's called the Ark of Return, 
and takes prime position in the UN Visitors Plaza, a short walk from the General Assembly. Jamaica played a key role in the creation of the memorial, the Caribbean island a prime destination for Africans forcibly taken there to work the plantations. Jamaica's Prime Minister Portia Simpson-Miller speaking at the unveiling. I stand before you today with mixed emotions, celebrating the ultimate triumph over the inhumane conditions of the Middle Passage and the reprehensible economic and social architecture of plantation slavery. At the same time, I, the proud daughter of the Ashanti Queen Nanny of the Maroons, cannot ignore the unspeakable tragedy of the many millions who succumbed to the dastardly conditions and whose memories now pave the annals of our history. An international committee was established in 2009 to oversee the project of placing the memorial on the UN's grounds. And last year, the committee chose an American architect of Haitian descent, Rodney Leon's design, following an international competition featuring over 300 entries from 83 countries. The memorial really is an opportunity to talk about and to reflect upon the past, but also to acknowledge what it is that we have been able to accomplish here in the, presence by, uh, in the present by coming together to actually uh, endeavor to create this object in this space at the United Nations for people to then be able to reflect on that history. UN Chief Ban Ki-moon expressed his hope the memorial would acknowledge the collective tragedy that befell millions as an enduring acknowledgement of the people of African descent who perished or suffered as slaves. It also honors the huge members of the people purchased by the slave traders who never even survived the passage to the Americas. It will recognize the significant contributions the slaves and their descendants have made to the societies in which they live. General Assembly President Sam Kutesa. This remains one of the darkest and most abhorrent chapters in all our history. Today, is a remarkable moment in the history of the United Nations as we pay homage to the millions of men, women and children who were victims of the largest forced migration in history. The International Day of Remembrance of the Victims of Slavery and the Transatlantic Slave Trade has been marked annually on March 25th. This year's theme commemorates the role played particularly by women and the hardships that included sexual exploitation they had to endure. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Channel Africa listener, please note that as from Monday the 30th of March 2015, the English frequency to East and Central Africa between 0500 and 0600 Central African time changes to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band. I repeat, the frequency will change to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band. Also changing is the English frequency to Southern Africa between 0700 and 0800 Central African time. It is now changing to 6145 kHz in the 41 meter band. I'll repeat that. The broadcast to Southern Africa 
will change to 6145 kilohertz in the 41 meter band. Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sunrise, le soleil élevé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, du melang, san bonani. Africa, mulishadi, mulibwanji. Africa, en yomi, kilon shele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The year 2014 represents a historic milestone of 20 years of freedom and democracy in our country. An occasion to reflect on what has been achieved by South Africans working together. We have representative legislatures, an independent judiciary, independent public audit, an independent reserve bank, and independent constitutional bodies to provide checks and balances and protect the rights of citizens. Thanks to our progressive constitution, South Africa is a successful story. South Africa is a good story. Channel Africa listener, please note that as from Monday the 30th of March 2015, the English frequency to Eastern Central Africa between 0500 and 0600 Central African time changes to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band. I repeat, the frequency will change to 5980 kHz in the 49 meter band. Also changing is the English frequency to Southern Africa between 0700 and 0800 Central African time. It is now changing to 6145 kHz in the 41 meter band. I'll repeat that. The broadcast to Southern Africa will change to 6145 kHz in the 41 meter band. Channel Africa, your voice of the African Renaissance. Time for our economic report. Here is Tabisa Lehoku. Zambian President Ed Galungu has directed the finance and mining uh, ministers to change royalties on mining firms by April the 8th. The decision to increase royalties in January for open pit mines to 20% from 6% and those for underground mines to 8% from 6% has rattled unions and miners in Africa's second largest copper producer. 
Niger is weathering a fall in the price of its key exports and remains on track to grow by an average of 5.6% over the next two years. Uranium and refined oil accounted for roughly two-thirds of Niger's exports in 2013. While oil volatile prices can make revenues uncertain, the price of uranium, which makes up to 40% of exports, is contractually determined annually and lags international markets. South Africa's Reserve Bank Monetary Policy Committee is to announce its decision on the repo rate of the interest at which it lends commercial banks this afternoon. The rate currently stands at 5.75%. Rolande Boloi looks at the story. The majority of economists expect the rate to be kept on hold. Another key economic indicator will be disclosed when Statistics South Africa releases the producer price index for February 2015. Two significant price increases are expected next week on April the 1st. Motorists face a substantial fuel price increase with the introduction of the new fuel levy. The new fuel prices will be announced tomorrow and power will cost more as ESCOM's tariffs go up by 12.69% on Wednesday. The case in which former ESCOM CEO Tsiriso Matona is challenging his suspension will be heard today in the Labour Court in Johannesburg. Matona filed an urgent application following his suspension by the chair of the Board of Power Utilities, Olatsuoti. Matona and three other executives were asked to step aside while an inquiry was conducted into the challenges facing ESCOM. Murafet Dabana reports. Madonna is taking legal action against ESCOM, claiming it contravened the Labor Relations Act when it suspended him. Whilst the matter will be heard in the Labor Court, the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration says it received a referral from Madonna relating to his suspension. When announcing Madonna's suspension, Chairperson Zola Zotzi said there was no malice or charges linked to the suspended executives and they were simply asked to step down to ensure the fact-finding inquiry was transparent and open. However, Madonna has reportedly said the suspension has caused him irreparable harm. Indicators at the Sawa. The US dollar, 11.81 South African Rand, 9.67 Botswana Pula, 7.62 in Zambia, 0.67 British Pound, 0.91 Euro, Gold, $1.199 an ounce, Brand Crude, $1.145 an ounce, Platinum, $1.199 an ounce, Brand Crude, $5.803 a barrel. Economic Update. Now time for our final sports report. Here's Tommy Kuza. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with soccer. Tabo Manyama has scored on debut as Bafana Bafana East past Swaziland 3-1 in an international friendly in Babane last night. Manyama added to Tulan Shajua's opener after halftime before Manda Masango added the third and final nail in the coffin as Bafana Bafana cruised past their host in what was their first game since they failed the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations campaign in January. Meanwhile, Nigeria fell to a one-shot 
uh, one nil shock defeat at the Aqua Ibom Stadium to Uganda in an international friendly match that was played last night. Bafana Bafana will return to South Africa later today to continue preparations for the friendly international against Nigeria scheduled for Sunday at the Mbombela Stadium. Bafana coach Sheikh Mashaba says he's overwhelmed and satisfied by the win. We're satisfied. We got what we wanted. A result to take to Mpumalanga. Possibly it wraps off. In that game, we get a result as well. I think the boys play, played very well. But as we indicated that we've got 27 players in the team, we still have to bring others, look at them, wow, what's going to happen. Football Association chairperson Craig Dag says England could consider a bid to host the 2026 World Cup. England lost out to Russia for the right to host the 2018 tournament, where they came forth in the bidding process, winning only two votes. Doug says any attempt is depending, is depending on whether Sir Blatter remains in charge of the governing body FIFA during the process or on the other factor. He says that the appointment of Englishman David Gill onto the FIFA Executive Committee could prove influential. Well, Sepp Blatter is controlling it, we won't bid. Now, if David, on being the executive, can assure us there's a proper system and it's fair and all those things, then we could be persuaded otherwise. But at the moment, the policy is straightforward. We don't bid while Mr Blatter's there. The president of the Zambian Football Association, Kalusha Bala, says the English Football Association's plan to try and make it hard for players from non-European countries outside a FIFA Top 50 rankings to get work permit to play in England is flawed. It is wrong, first of all, and I've um, voiced my concern on um, I've been a strong follower and supporter of the Serblata and, and, uh, and FIFA, and I've made my, uh, my reservations about the, the FIFA ranking. We are competing with our teams in Africa and we don't compete with uh, Brazil, we don't compete with England, we're not competing uh, against uh, Germany, we're not competing against Argentina. And so my ranking should be based on the African competition that I enter. And now in cricket, we are live at the Sydney Cricket Ground today where Australia is playing up against India in the second Cricket World Cup semi-final. Australia retained the same lineup, the same, the same lineup that had a six-wicket win over Pakistan at Adelaide last Friday. And defending champions India is also having an unchanged lineup. That comfortably beat Bangladesh by 109 runs at Melbourne last week. And Clark is confident that his side will have no problem handling the weight of local expectations against reigning champions India. I think already you've seen the guys handle it really well throughout the tournament. The way the boys played in the, the quarterfinal against Pakistan was extremely pleasing. Um, you know, expectations there because we're the number one ranked one day team in the world. Um, the reason you have expectation on you is because you've performed. Now, currently the score is 285 for six after 47 overs. So we'll be bringing you that update each and every hour. I'm Tami Kuza for Channel Africa Sports in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zora Afrika amka na unai That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today from myself Jazza Rod producer Tracy Bungard technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team thank you for listening for any comments email us at info@channelafrica.org or sms plus 2782-332-5905 don't forget that number taking us to top of the hour bump bump that uh, fabulous lady Brenda Fussy on Channel Africa